Our scripture reading today is from the book of Matthew. It's the second half of chapter 24. Matthew 24, starting in verse 29. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learned its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man." Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him in with hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you. Thank you, Mike been reading through the book of Matthew. We're getting close to the end. It's been good. Huh? There you go. Only the beginning. <clears throat> Turn with me to Psalm chapter 23. Psalm chapter 23. As, as Wayne mentioned earlier, I'm, I've been uh, coughing up a storm over the last couple of days, so I'm just hoping that we don't get interrupted by another coughing fit. So uh, if you can keep me in your minds and prayers over this next moment of time. 
Psalm 23 says this, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we come to your word this morning that we will see you. And Lord, we will take our eyes off of ourselves and that we would worship you. And Lord, you would help us today to learn better how to read your word and how to see the central focus of your word this morning. Praise in your name. Amen. To start this service this morning, we need to ask ourselves a really important question. What matters to you more, you or Jesus? At first thought, I mean, you're here, right? So you think you might know the answer to that question. But if we were to stand before the Lord and he was to show us what each day of our lives is filled with, what would the evidence show? What would your priorities reveal? What would your kids say? These are indeed tough questions. And for most of us, at least those of us who are being honest, we would be ashamed to admit that most of the time, we matter to us much more than Jesus does. Now, that introduces a major problem. If, if random acts of religious activity once or even 52 times a year isn't enough for us to solidly claim that Jesus matters to us, then what hope is there? Maybe you're more skeptical this morning and you're wondering why Jesus even should matter to you in the first place. In fact, maybe you're wondering what does it even mean for Jesus to matter to us? Is it a checklist of volunteerism? Is it having a head knowledge of historical facts? Now, th these questions could go on forever, and we could spend all day just asking questions like this. So let's, let's stop asking questions, and let's move to solutions. Easter Sunday, indeed the entirety of what we call Holy Week, is focused on Jesus and what he did for us, his death and his resurrection. Think about the implications of what took place nearly 2,000 years ago. The only eternal Son of God added complete humanity to his complete divinity for one reason and one reason alone, to die as a substitute for us. That's what he did. You see, thousands of years before that, Instead of worshiping the triune God, humanity rebelled against him. 
bringing sin into the world. The word sin means to miss the mark. In other words, sin is anything that does not measure up to the standards of a holy God. Sin against an infinitely holy God can only earn infinite, eternal death. However, because God is also perfectly loving, he also planned a rescue mission for humanity. He knew that we would rebel against him, yet he still created us. Think about that fact alone. Further, he knew that there was no way that any amount of religious activity could satisfy the penalty of our rebellion, of our, the penalty that our rebellion against God truly deserves. Therefore, only God himself could do something about our sin. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, took on humanity with one final purpose, to die the death that we owe so that we can have life. And his name is Jesus. We deserve to be hanged on that cross 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. We deserved to be mocked and beaten. And even that death, if we had died that death ourselves, would not have been enough to save us. Only Jesus could satisfy the wrath of God that ought to be poured out on your sin and on mine. But if Jesus had stayed dead, we would still not be able to be saved from eternal separation from God, the eternal death that our sin deserves. But three days later, conquering sin and Satan and death, Jesus rose victorious from the grave. Amen. This is not a simple matter of faith, but is historically reliable fact. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he proved himself to be king of kings and lord of lords and demands that we bow before him in worship. Not because he's selfish. Right, if I was to stand before you and say, I demand that you bow before me in worship, that would be selfish. But Jesus actually is the only one who truly deserves to be worshipped. So when he demands our worship, it is because he truly does deserve it. He is both Savior and Lord to those who would follow him and be saved from the punishment due their sin. By surrendering to and trusting him for salvation, by casting aside our self-help religiosity and putting on his righteousness, we can have true life. And clothed in his righteousness, we can stand before the Lord as he shows us as he, as he shows our, us our lives and be declared righteous despite our sin and because of his righteousness alone. This is what we call the gospel. This gospel is described in 1 Corinthians 15 this way. Paul, Paul, speaking to this church in Corinth, begins to explain this. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most remarkable passages about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. He says this, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's stop right there. Paul tells us that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Now, what scriptures do you think he might be talking about there? Has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John been written yet? No. So he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying that Jesus' death and resurrection was declared in the Old Testament. What we learn then is that Jesus is the centerpiece of the entirety of Scripture. This leads us into where we're going today. He's not merely the showstopper that shows up in the New Testament, but the very focus of the message of the Old Testament. Typically today we think of the New Testament as kind of like the main headline of the Bible, and the Old Testament is just where we learn about, you know, some stories that help us to be better people. But Paul in 1 Corinthians claims that the Old Testament is where we learn about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He claims that the focus of the Old Testament is to reveal the gospel to us. Now, while we don't have time to go through all 39 books of the Old Testament, it would take way longer than you or I are willing to go right now. Or really to even delve deeply into one entire book, we can certainly see how this plays out in probably one of the less likely of sources in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms. And even more, we can see how one of the most beloved passages of the Bible, which we often read as encouragement to ourselves and God's present toward us, is doing that. It is encouraging us and talking about God's present to us, but not in the way that we usually think we'll find that the book of Psalms is not in the end a book about us, but is actually pointing us to Jesus. In the New Testament, the book of Psalms is quoted 68 times. That is more than any other book of the Old Testament. Number two is Isaiah with something like 55 times that Isaiah, Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament. 68 times the book of Psalms is quoted. Many of those quotations are used to show how the book of Psalms is pointing to truths about the gospel. Jesus himself quotes from the book of Psalms while hanging on the cross in order to point to his fulfillment of those prophecies about him contained in that chapter. Often we go to the Psalms for comfort from life's trials. We fail to see what they have to do with Jesus. For starters, we often do not think about the fact that whoever put the book of Psalms together put them in the order that they are for a reason. Let's start. If we realize that it's put together in the order that it's in for a reason, we start to look for why is it put together the way it is then. Thus, if we start in the beginning of the book of Psalms, we can help understand the book of Psalms in a new light and see how they are ultimately not about us, but are in fact about Jesus. Turn to, uh, if you're in Psalm 23 still, turn back to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1 and 2 actually ought to be read together. And I'll show you why here in just a second. 
Um, in fact, let me show you right now. If you look at the beginning of verse 1 and the end of, chapter, of, of verse 1 of chapter 1 and the last verse of chapter 2, you see this very similar phrase. You said, you see in chapter 1, 1, blessed is the man. And in chapter 2, verse 12, the very last line, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is a poetic device called inclusio. Sometimes you may see this as like a bookshelf, right? It's one end of a bookshelf and the other end of the bookshelf. These, are, these phrases are keeping this all together. So if we keep that in mind, we, we see that Psalm 1 and 2 should be read together. So the content goes together. So let's look at Psalm 1 and 2 and see what is, what is the author of the book of Psalms want us to do with this book? What is he trying to get us to learn? Starts out with the phrase, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. In the original language, this word, this phrase can actually mean, oh, the blessed man. Oh, the blessed man. So we're talking about one guy. And let's look at how this guy is described. Oh, the blessed man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now let me ask you a question. Is this describing me thus far? Is this describing you? Doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffers, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and all day long meditates on the book of Leviticus. Right? All day long meditates on the law of God. Tell you right now, I'm out. We're only into verse two, and I'm already out. This does not describe me. This is not talking about me. Furthermore, if we continue reading, we find out more how this is not about me, and this is not, if you're honest, about you. It says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does, he prospers. Does everything I do prosper? No. Does everything you do prosper? No. In fact, in this particular case, it's speaking about prospering as in working towards effectively uh, or uh, prospering God's kingdom. In that case, this is not me. Everything I do does not prosper God's kingdom. It says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, if we continue on to chapter 2, understand that we've just been introduced to a guy who is the blessed man, who everything he does prospers. Everything he does goes toward uh, prospering the kingdom of God. Chapter 2 is interesting then. If we keep, keep that in mind and think we're talking about the same guy in, from chapter 1 and jump into chapter 2, this is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying. Let's pause right there. This word anointed, this is the, the Hebrew word Messiah. You may have heard that word before. You know what the Greek word for Messiah is? Christ. It says, who, the, the nations are raging against the Lord and against his Christ. 
against his anointed, against the Messiah. And what are these nations saying? Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They're rebelling against the rule of the Lord and against the rule of his Messiah. I love how God responds here. He who sits in heaven laughs. And the Lord holds him in derision. Think about that. The nations are saying, we want nothing to do with what God's rule is. And how does God respond? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, another song I like uh, says that this, this essentially is like a kid with a super soaker trying to conquer Spain. It's not going to happen, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely preposterous that, that we and the kings of the nations would rebel against the Lord and against his Christ. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God says, I've got a king already. I've already got a king. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The author of Hebrews takes this same verse and says, to which of the angels did the Lord ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What the author of Hebrews is pointing out is that the one who whom God is speaking here, this guy who is the son that God calls his son is Jesus. He is the eternal son of God. So we find that this guy is a blessed man. He is a Messiah. He is a king. And now we find that he is a divine son, the son of God. As for me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And it says, kiss the son. This word for kiss is a worship term. We could rightfully say this is also saying worship the son, this guy who is the blessed man, the king, the Messiah, the divine son, worship him lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you say, well, how do I become a blessed man? Psalm 2 answers that. If you want to be a blessed man like he is, worship him. And then you'll be clothed in his righteousness and you'll have his blessing given to you. Well, that's true. that throws the entire book of Psalms into a brand new perspective, doesn't it? No longer is the Psalms just comforting things for us to read. But now this is telling us the story of the gospel. This is telling us about who Jesus is. A couple other things you might want to, uh, that might help you understand this. You might see in your Bibles, there's these, what we call superscriptions, right? There's, sometimes your Bible has like a, like a description of kind of um, like what this, what this is about. You know, for example, mine on, front of top, on the top of chapter three says, save me, oh my God. That's not scripture. That's an editor coming in and saying, okay, well, this is, this is what this is kind of about. But there's another part right after that that says, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, and then it continues on from there. 
These are called superscriptions. These things are actually part of the biblical text. Oftentimes we overlook them and we open up our Bibles and we start reading the Psalms. We just skip that part, right? Because that's just, that's just like God's editor decisions, right? Like that's it's of David, whatever, not a big deal. When in fact, these are actually helping us orient how we read this Psalm. These, these superscriptions are helping us orient those things. In fact, many times it says a psalm of David when it says just a psalm of David. By this time in the book of Psalms, if you've been reading through your Bible, who's already dead? David. This is a psalm. Is this, just, is this just saying this is a psalm that was written by David or is it telling us more than that? I would argue that this is telling us more than that. Not only is it a psalm written by the historical David, but it is also a psalm written about the end times David, the one who is the son of David, which seems to go along with what Psalm 1 and 2 have already shown us. Another phrase that you might see in there is to the choir master. This is often translated to the choir master because they, you know, it's assumed by the translator, well, this is a song, so this is written to a guy who's in charge of the choir, right? Hebrew is a funny language. If you ever studied Hebrew, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you ever studied any languages, languages are funny. Hebrew is a very funny language. Sometimes the exact same word can mean very, very radically different things. We have the same in English as well. But this same Hebrew word that is translated to the choir master can also be translated to the end. In fact, in the Septuagint, which was written 200, translated 200 years before Jesus was ever born, translated this word every time to the end, to the end, looking toward the end, looking to the end times realities, right? In other words, those translators understood these things to be talking about the one who is to come, the son of David that is to come. Uh, to, the, to the end. So that in mind, let's continue looking forward. Um, if you were to continue reading, you see throughout these, these psalms that, that the father continuously promises to save the son from his enemies, building a case for a father who will be faithful to the son. The son can then trust the word of the father, and then because of that, we can as well, right? So this does apply to us, just not necessarily in the way you think. If you go to Psalm 16, let's look at Psalm 16 real quick. Psalm 16 is really interesting. This psalm says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. To, to, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their, drunk, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their uh, names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. <clears throat> Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In Psalm 16 here, this, this verse pops out. It says, you will not let 
you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the place of death. You will not let me stay dead or let your Holy One see corruption. In Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, he quotes this verse to say, Jesus rose from the dead because David said he would. Because David said that, he, that God the Father will not abandon the soul of the Son to Sheol. And he will not let his Holy One see corruption. So here we have the resurrection proclaimed. We have a, a psalm which promises that the Father will not leave the Son in death. You see, throughout the other parts of the Psalms were, were different aspects. If we think back to, our, to the crucifixion narrative, we see other aspects of the Psalms just come out. And, and Jesus is even saying these things on the cross. In Psalm chapter 31, for instance, Jesus says, in, or the, 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 the Psalm says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. We've heard that before, haven't we? Jesus says that very thing on the cross. Now let's move a little bit closer to where we are in our text today. Psalm chapter 22, 23, and 24 is probably three of my favorite psalms in the entire Bible. You'll notice at first, if you look at Psalm chapter 22, starts with the phrase, to the choir master. What should that now do for our minds? We're looking at a future event here. We're looking to the end, right? Not the end like Revelation, but we're looking to Jesus, specifically in this particular case. Now, that's all well and good, but does the psalm support that? Can we read the psalm that way? Verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard that before? Jesus says this on the cross. Says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus quote that passage? Why did Jesus say that on the cross? Is it because there was some kind of inner turmoil or whatever? I would disagree. I would say that what why Jesus does that is he is pointing and saying, Psalm 22 is about right now. What's going on right now is fulfilling Psalm 22, and I want you guys to know that. So let's read this psalm, and let's see if there's any other areas where we can see the, the cross or, the, or, 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 or things about Jesus here. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings, O God? O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That sound familiar? If you are the Christ, take yourself off the cross. Verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Oh, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and 
and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a postured, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far, far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You, have, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from them, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations." All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Who's, what's going on with this guy in chapter 22? Is he in a great place? No. In fact, before the chapter ends, we're pretty certain he's dead. Right? He says, you've put me down in the dust of death. That dogs are, in, are, are trying to eat me. They divided my garments among them. But then there's a promise that he speaks. He says, God, you're not going to leave this alone. This is not the final word. And as we said, these chapters are put together in the order that they are for a reason. If the story ended in chapter 22, that'd be pretty hopeless for this guy, right? We'd be hoping in something that we have not seen. That'd be okay, but 23 gives us a great promise. Remember, 1 Corinthians 15 said that the resurrection is declared in the scriptures in the Old Testament. Here is where we see one of these passages. Just as we saw in Psalm 16, we see here again, it's a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Like I mentioned, Hebrew is kind of an odd language. This phrase, he restores my soul in the original language can also mean he resurrects my life. He resurrects my life. Here we have this same guy who in Psalm 22 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been killed. Dogs are surrounding me. They're dividing my garments. Now he says, Lord, you raised me from the dead. You've resurrected my life. 
And he leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Just in case we were wondering, look at what he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is not just a metaphor. This is saying, even though you put me down to death, even though I died, I will, have, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This same guy who in Psalm chapter 1 and 2, we find out that we can have salvation if we trust this guy. Now we're finding out why we can have salvation if we trust this guy. He died, and he was raised to life. And not only that, it doesn't stop there. Psalm 24 continues on this story. This is beautiful. We see death and we see resurrection. Psalm 24 gives us the next part of the story. It's still a Psalm of David. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Just like you saw in chapter one, my friends, I'm telling you, this is not talking about me. I don't have clean hands and a pure heart. Oftentimes I am found in sin and if you were honest with yourself, you would say you're right there too. So who is this person? Who could possibly be this one? There's only, who could qualify? Who could meet these qualifications? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He's got to have clean hands and a pure heart. He has to not lift his soul to what is false and not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now here's where it gets wonderful. It says here, verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This guy who in chapter 22 died and in chapter 23 was raised to life, we find out in chapter 24, ascends on high and is the king of glory. Now, all we see from these passages is that we are not the direct subject of the Psalms. It is because of Christ that we can find comfort in the Psalms. It is in light of who Christ is. It is in light of what he has done. It is in light of what these Psalms tell us about Jesus that we can actually find comfort in them. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we can also have life. So as we saw a glimpse of this morning, Jesus is the central message of the entirety of Scripture. And we only saw this in a few chapters in the book of Psalms. But let me ask you this question again. We learned some things about Jesus this morning. 
me ask you this question again. How much does Jesus matter to you? How much does he matter to you? Is he really the center of your life? Is your life and your daily activity centered on worshiping him and glorifying him with every aspect of your life? Scripture tells us that every time we do not glorify God with our decisions, excuse me, we commit acts of war against the God who created the universe. That's what our sin ultimately is. They are acts of war declared against the God of the universe. So when you're on the internet and you think no one is watching, the sin you commit in that moment is an act of war. When you're sitting with your friends, you're still telling them about so-and-so did this and -and so-and-so did that, you start gossiping. That act is an act of war against the God who created the universe. When you're just hanging out and you make light of sin, you joke around about things that are ungodly, those are acts of war against the God of the universe. When you start talking politics, you say, I just wish that so-and-so from whatever party, I wish he'd go to hell already. Or you say the same thing about your neighbor. Speaking ill of people who God created, those are acts of war against the God of the universe. Or your priorities. How do you prioritize things in your life? Is being with God's people kind of like something I don't really need to do? Just go on Easter, go on Christmas, and we're good? Or does God ask for more than that? In fact, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, not neglecting the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. We are told by Scripture to be with God's people, to worship together with God's people for mutual accountability. Do your priorities show worshiping the Lord? Or are your priorities an act of war against the God of the universe? Now, before, before you get too weirded out and say, well, Justin, you know, you're not perfect either, I know. If we're honest, every single one of us fail to give God the glory he deserves. Every one of us find ourselves seated on the throne of our hearts far more often than we find Jesus as the Lord of our lives. Every single one of us deserves death for our sin. Myself included. Every one of us. This is the good news. Jesus substituted himself in your place and in mine. The only one to have ever lived on this earth as a human being who did not deserve death. The only one who was king of kings and lord of lords. The only one who was perfectly sinless. He died for my wickedness. He put my wickedness on himself. He put your wickedness, your acts of war against the God of the universe on himself. 
in the full measure of the cup of God's wrath, every bit of it to the last drop was poured out on him on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the dead. This is what we're here to celebrate today, guys. This is why Easter is such a big deal to Christians. Because Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, that's why we meet every single Sunday, because Jesus rose from the dead and conquered sin and Satan and death so that we might have life. So let me ask you, will you give him his rightful place? Will you give him his rightful place? If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never trusted him as your savior, you've never made him to be or, or accepted him as savior and Lord of your life, if you've never made that decision, there's no better time than now. We are not promised another breath. And apart from Christ, we are promised eternity, an eternity of separation and death from him. But in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness, as we said earlier. And we are declared righteous, not because I'm righteous. I am declared righteous. It is righteousness from outside of me that gets applied to me only by the grace of a loving God. That's what the gospel is. Will you trust Christ as your Savior today? Maybe you've given your life to Jesus before, but, but right now you're not living out the implications of the gospel that is to pursue holiness and to serve and worship with God's people. Will you repent of your sin and return to your loving father? He's waiting for you to wrap you in his embrace and grant grace and forgiveness to you. He's just waiting. Jesus is worthy of your entire life. How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that your gospel is clear throughout scripture. That Jesus, you mattered so much to be the center focus of all of scripture so that you would reveal yourself to us. What a privilege it is that we have to know that about you. Lord, to know who you are. I pray, Lord, that if there is someone here who does not know you as Savior, who has not surrendered their lives to you as Savior, and Lord, they would not leave today without knowing that for sure. The gospel is simple, but the consequences are enormous. The consequences of rejecting your gospel is literally a decision between life and death. Lord, I pray if there is someone here who does know you as Savior but has not been walking in the implications of the gospel, Lord, that, you, that they would repent of that sin. And Lord, I know that you are ready and waiting to forgive them and, and embrace them and bring them back to your side. Pray as we respond to this that you would be glorified. In your name, amen.